Hey everyone, it is I, DB Spitzer, here with week four of Edgar Allan Poe, The Collected Works, The Raven Edition. So that's volume four. Yeah, that's that's what we got going on on Black Clock Audio Tales. Also, we have, uh, at some point in time, soon, we're going to have Ken Height talking about Edgar Allan Poe and some Dave from Dave's Corner of the Universe and Dave's Underground Goat Shenanigans reading some Poe for us. So here we are. Edgar Allan Poe, and of course, as always, this episode is brought to you by BunnySlippers.com. Keep your feet warm this winter. Don't, 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 uh, don't, don't succumb to, to frostbite. Just make sure you wear slippers. It's a good plan, but, you know, if you're going outside in subarctic temperatures, wear more than bunny slippers. Just word of advice. BunnySlippers.com. Don't die of a exhaustion and exposure yeah also found out in clothing wear cool shirts from your favorite cool cult films of the 80s and 90s and some 70s stuff okay all right and also of course check out articulate warbling with zach ferguson look for him and dave's underground goat shenanigans on pgttcm.com and you can follow us on instagram you can follow us on facebook and you can follow us on twitter pgttcm.com black clock audio tales just search for those two things and you will find us out in the world on the internet all that fun stuff all right edgar Allan poe right now and remember hey sorry <laughs> remember if you want people to know about it share it with other people let other people know about it uh rate review give it us uh five stars on the amazon and uh, not amazon the itunes or stitcher or whatever uh, thank you so much recording by shantae elliott the Landscape Garden by Edgar Allan Poe The garden like a lady fair was cut that lay as if she slumbered in delight, and to the open skies her eyes did shut. The azure fields of heaven were assembled right in a large round set with flowers of light, the flowers de loose and the round sparks of dew that hung upon their azure leaves did show like twinkling stars that sparkle in the evening blue. Giles Fletcher No more remarkable man ever lived than my friend, the young Ellison. He was remarkable in the entire and continuous profusion of good gifts ever lavished upon him by fortune. From his cradle to his grave, a gale of the blandest prosperity bore him along. Nor do I use the word prosperity in its mere worldly or external sense. I mean it as synonymous with happiness. The person of whom I speak seemed born for the purpose of foreshadowing the wild doctrines of Tegrell, Price, Priestley, and Condorcet, of exemplifying, by individual instance, what has been deemed the mere chimera of the perfectionists. In the brief existence of Ellison, I fancy that I have seen refuted the dogma that in man's physical and spiritual nature lies some hidden principle, the antagonist of bliss. An intimate and anxious examination of his career has taught me to understand that, in general, from the violation of a few simple laws of humanity, arises the wretchedness of mankind. That, as a species, we have in our possession the as-yet unwrought elements of content. 
and that even now in the present blindness and darkness of all idea on the great question of the social condition it is not impossible that man the individual under certain unusual and highly fortuitous conditions may be happy with opinions such as these was my young friend fully imbued and thus is it especially worthy of observation that the uninterrupted enjoyment which distinguished his life was in great part the result of preconcert it is indeed evident that with less of the instinctive philosophy which now and then stands so well in the stead of experience mr ellison would have found himself precipitated by the very extraordinary successes of his life into the common vortex of unhappiness which yawns for those of preeminent endowments but it is by no means my present object to pen an essay on happiness the ideas of my friend may be summed up in a few words he admitted but four unvarying laws or rather elementary principles of bliss that which he considered chief was strange to say the simple and purely physical one of free exercise in the open air the health he said attainable by other means than this is scarcely worth the name he pointed to the tillers of the earth the only people who as a class are proverbially more happy than others and then he instanced the high ecstasies of the fox hunter his second principle was the love of woman his third the contempt of ambition his fourth was an object of unceasing pursuit and he held that other things being equal the extent of happiness was proportioned to the spirituality of this object i have said that ellison was remarkable in the continuous profusion of good gifts lavished upon him by fortune in personal grace and beauty he exceeded all men his intellect was of that order to which the attainment of knowledge is less a labor than a necessity and an intuition his family was one of the most illustrious of the empire his bride was the loveliest and most devoted of women his possessions had been always ample but upon the attainment of his one-and-twentieth year it was discovered that one of those extraordinary freaks of fate had been played in his behalf which startle the whole social world amid which they occur and seldom fell radically to alter the entire moral constitution of those who are their objects it appears that about one hundred years prior to mr ellison's attainment of his majority there had died in a remote province one mr seabright ellison this gentleman had amassed a princely fortune and having no very immediate connections conceived the whim of suffering his wealth to accumulate for a century after his decease minutely and sagaciously directing the various modes of investment he bequeathed the aggregate amount to the nearest of blood bearing the name ellison who should be alive at the end of a hundred years many futile attempts had been made to set aside the singular bequest their ex post facto character rendered them abortive but the attention of a jealous government was aroused and a decree finally obtained forbidding all similar accumulations 
this act did not prevent young ellison upon his twenty-first birthday from entering into possession as the heir of his ancestor seabright of a fortune of four hundred and fifty millions of dollars when it had become definitely known that such was the enormous wealth inherited there were of course many speculations as to the mode of its disposal the gigantic magnitude and the immediately available nature of the sum dazzled and bewildered all who thought upon the topic the possessor of any appreciable amount of money might have been imagined to perform any one of a thousand things with riches merely surpassing those of any citizen it would have been easy to suppose him engaging to supreme excess in the fashionable extravagances of his time or busying himself with political intrigue or aiming at ministerial power or purchasing increase of nobility or devising gorgeous architectural piles or collecting large specimens of virtue or playing the munificent patron of letters and art or endowing and bestowing his name upon extensive institutions of charity but for the inconceivable wealth in the actual possession of the young heir these objects and all ordinary objects were felt to be inadequate recourse was had to figures and figures but sufficed to confound it was seen that even at three percent the annual income of the inheritance amounted to no less than thirteen millions and five hundred thousand dollars which was one million and one hundred and twenty five thousand per month or thirty six thousand nine hundred and eighty six per day or one thousand five hundred and forty one per hour or six and twenty dollars for every minute that flew thus the usual track of supposition was thoroughly broken up men knew not what to imagine there were some who even conceived that mr ellison would divest himself forthwith at, at least two-thirds of his fortune as of utterly superfluous opulence enriching whole troops of his relatives by division of his superabundance i was not surprised however to perceive that he had long made up his mind upon the topic which had occasioned so much of discussion to his friends nor was i greatly astonished at the nature of his decision in the widest and noblest sense he was a poet he comprehended moreover the true character the august aims the supreme majesty and dignity of the poetic sentiment the proper gratification of the sentiment he instinctively felt to lie in the creation of novel forms of beauty some peculiarities either in his early education or in the nature of his intellect had tinged with what is termed materialism the whole cast of his ethical speculations and it was this bias perhaps which imperceptibly led him to perceive that the most advantageous if not the sole legitimate field for the exercise of the poetic sentiment was to be found in the creation of novel moves of purely physical loveliness thus it happened that he became neither musician nor poet if we use this latter term in its everyday acceptation or it might have been that he became neither the one nor the other in pursuance of an idea of his which i have already mentioned the idea 
that in the contempt of ambition lay one of the essential principles of happiness on earth. Is it not, indeed, possible that while a high order of genius is necessarily ambitious, the highest is invariably above that which is termed ambition? And may it not thus happen that many far greater than Milton have contentedly remained mute and inglorious? I believe the world has never yet seen in that, unless through some series of accidents goading the noblest order of mind into distasteful exertion, the world will never behold that full extent of triumphant execution in the richer productions of art of which the human nature is absolutely capable. Mr. Ellison became neither musician nor poet. Although no man lived more profoundly enamored both of music and the muse. Under other circumstances than those which invested him, it is not impossible that he would have become a painter. The field of sculpture, although in its nature rigidly political, was too limited in its extent and in its consequences to have occupied, at any time, much of his attention and I have now mentioned all the provinces in which even the most liberal understanding of the poetic sentiment has declared this sentiment capable of expatiating. I mean, the most liberal public and recognized conception of the idea involved in the phrase poetic sentiment. But Mr. Ellison imagined that the richest and altogether the most natural and most suitable province had been blindedly neglected. No definition had spoken of the landscape gardener as of the poet, yet my friend could not fail to perceive that the creation of the landscape garden offered to the true muse the most magnificent of opportunities. Here was, indeed, the fairest field for the display of invention or imagination, in the endless combining of forms of novel beauty. The elements which should enter into combination being, at all times, and by vast superiority, the most glorious which the earth could afford. In the multiform of the tree, and in the multicolor of the flower, he recognized the most direct and the most energetic efforts of nature at physical loveliness. And in the direction or concentration of this effort, or, still more properly, in its adaptation to the eyes which were to behold it upon earth, he perceived that he should be employing the best means, laboring to the greatest advantage, in the fulfillment of his destiny as poet. Its adaptation to the eyes which were to behold it upon earth. In his explanation of this phraseology, Mr. Ellison did much towards solving what has always seemed to me an enigma. I mean the fact, which none but the ignorant dispute, that no such combinations of scenery exist in nature as the painter of genius has in his power to produce. No such paradises are to be found in reality as have glowed upon the canvases of Claude. In the most enchanting of natural landscapes, there will always be found a defect or an excess many excesses and defects. While the component parts may exceed, individually, the highest skill of the artist, the arrangement of the parts will always be susceptible of improvement. 
in short no position can be attained from which an artistical eye looking steadily will not find matter of offence in what is technically termed the composition of a natural landscape and yet how unintelligible is this in all other matters we are justly instructed to regard nature as supreme with her details we shrink from competition who shall presume to imitate the color of the tulip or to improve the proportions of the lily of the valley the criticism which says of sculpture or of portraiture that nature is to be exalted rather than imitated is in error no pictorial or sculptural combinations of points of human loveliness do more than approach the living and breathing human beauty as it gladdens our daily path byron who often erred erred not in saying i've seen more living beauty ripe and real than all the nonsense of their stone ideal and landscape alone is the principle of the critic true and having felt its truth here it is but the headlong spirit of generalization which has induced him to pronounce it true throughout all the domains of art having i say felt its truth here for the feeling is no affectation or chimera the mathematics afford no more absolute demonstrators than the sentiment of his art yields to the artist he not only believes but positively knows that such and such apparently arbitrary arrangements of matter or form constitute and alone constitute the true beauty yet his reasons have not yet been matured into expression it remains for a more profound analysis than the world has yet seen fully to investigate and express them nevertheless he is he confirmed in his instinctive opinions by the concurrence of all his compeers let a composition be defective let an emendation be wrought in its mere arrangement of form let this emendation be submitted to every artist in the world by each will its necessity be admitted and even far more than this in remedy of the defective composition each insulated member of the fraternity will suggest the identical emendation i repeat that in landscape arrangements or collocations alone is the physical nature susceptible of exaltation and that therefore her susceptibility of improvement at this one point was a mystery which hitherto i had been unable to solve it was mr ellison who first suggested the idea that what we regarded as improvement or exaltation of the natural beauty was really such as respected only the mortal or human point of view that each alteration or disturbance of the primitive scenery might possibly affect a blemish in the picture if we could suppose this picture viewed at large from some remote point in the heavens it is easily understood said mr ellison that what might improve a closely scrutinized detail might at the same time injure a general and more distantly observed effect he spoke upon this topic with warmth regarding not so much its immediate or obvious importance which is little 
as the character of the conclusions to which it might lead or of the collateral propositions which it might serve to corroborate or sustain there might be a class of beings human once but now to humanity invisible for whose scrutiny and for whose refined appreciation of the beautiful more especially than for our own had been set in order by god the great landscape garden of the whole earth in the course of our discussion my young friend took occasion to quote some passages from a writer who has been supposed to have well treated this theme there are properly he writes but two styles of landscape gardening the natural and the artificial one seeks to recall the original beauty of the country by adapting its means to the surrounding scenery cultivating trees in harmony with the hills or plain of the neighboring land detecting and bringing into practice those nice relations of size proportion and color which hid from the common observer are revealed everywhere to the experienced student of nature the result of the natural style of gardening is seen rather in the absence of all defects and incongruities and the prevalence of a beautiful harmony and order than in the creation of any special wonders or miracles the artificial style has as many varieties as there are different tastes to gratify it has a certain general relation to the various styles of building there are the stately avenues and retirements of versailles italian terraces and a various mixed old English style, which bears some relation to the domestic Gothic or English Elizabethan architecture. Whatever may be said against the abuses of the artificial landscape gardening, a mixture of pure art in the garden scene adds to it a great beauty. This is partly pleasing to the eye by the show of order and design, and partly moral. A terrace with an old moss-covered balustrade calls up at once to the eye the fair forms that have passed there in other days. The slightest exhibition of art is an evidence of care and human interest. From what I have already observed, said Mr. Ellison, you will understand that I reject the idea here expressed of recalling the original beauty of the country the original beauty is never so great as that which may be introduced of course much depends upon the selection of a spot with capabilities what is said in respect to the detecting and bringing into practice those nice relations of size proportion and color is a mere vagueness of speech which may mean much or little or nothing and which guides no degree that the true result of the natural style of gardening is seen rather in the absence of all defects and incongruities than in the creation of any special wonders or miracles is a proposition better suited to the groveling apprehension of the herd than to the fervid dreams of the man of genius the merit suggested is at best negative and appertains to that hobbling criticism which in letters 
would elevate Addison into apotheosis. In truth, while that merit which consists in the mere avoiding demerit appeals directly to the understanding and can thus be foreshadowed in rule, the loftier merit which breathes and flames in invention or creation can be apprehended solely in its results. Rule applies but to the excellences of avoidance, to the virtues which deny or refrain. Beyond these, the critical art can but suggest. We may be instructed to build an odyssey, but it is in vain that we are told how to conceive a tempest, an inferno, a Prometheus bound, a nightingale, such as that of Keats, or the sensitive plant of Shelley. But the thing done, the wonder accomplished, the capacity for apprehension becomes universal. The sophists of the negative school, who, through inability to create, have scoffed at creation, are now found the loudest in applause. What, in its chrysalis condition of principle, affronted their demure reason, never fails in its maturity of accomplishment to exhort admiration from their instinct of the beautiful or of the sublime. Our author's observation in the artificial style of gardening, continued Mr. Ellison, are less objectionable. A mixture of pure art in a garden scene adds to it a great beauty. This is just, and the reference to the sense of human interest is equally so. I repeat that the principle here expressed is incontrovertible, but there may be something even beyond it. There may be an object in full keeping with the principle suggested, an object unattainable by the means it ordinarily in possession of mankind, yet which, if attained, would lend a charm to the landscape garden immeasurably surpassing that which a merely human interest could bestow. The true poet possessed of very unusual pecuniary resources might possibly, while retaining the necessary idea of art or interest or culture, so imbue his designs at once with extent and novelty of beauty as to convey the sentiment of spiritual interference. It will be seen that in bringing about such results, he secures all the advantages of interest or design, while relieving his work of all the harshness and technicality of art. In the most rugged of wildernesses, in the most savage of the scenes of pure nature, there is apparent the art of a creator. Yet is this art apparent only to reflection? In no respect has it the obvious force of a feeling. Now, if we imagine the sense of the Almighty designed to be harmonized in a measurable degree, if we suppose a landscape whose combined strangeness, vastness, definitiveness, and magnificence shall inspire the idea of culture or care or superintendence, on the part of intelligences superior yet akin to humanity, then the sentiment of interest is preserved. While the art is made to assume 
the air of an intermediate or secondary nature, a nature which is not God, nor an emanation of God, but which is still nature, in the sense that it is the handiwork of the angels that hover between man and God. It was in devoting his gigantic wealth to the practical embodiment of a vision such as this, and the free exercise in the open air, which resulted from personal direction of his plans, and the continuous and unceasing object which these plans afford, and the contempt of ambition which it enabled him more to feel than to affect, and lastly, it was in the companionship and sympathy of a devoted wife that Ellison thought to find, and found, an exemption from the ordinary cares of humanity, with a far greater amount of positive happiness than ever glowed in the rapt daydream of disdain. End of section 17 Mazel's Chess Player by Edgar Allan Poe. Perhaps no exhibition of the kind has ever elicited so general attention as the chess player of Mausel. Wherever seen, it has been an object of intense curiosity to all persons who think. Yet the question of its modus operandi is still undetermined. Nothing has been written on this topic which can be considered as decisive, and accordingly we find everywhere men of mechanical genius, of great general acuteness, and discriminative understanding, who make no scruple in pronouncing the automaton a pure machine, unconnected with human agency in its movements, and consequently beyond all comparison the most astonishing of the inventions of mankind, and such it would undoubtedly be were they right in their supposition. Assuming this hypothesis, it would be grossly absurd to compare with the chess player any similar thing of either modern or ancient days, yet there have been many and wonderful automata. In Brewster's Letters on Natural Magic, we have an account of the most remarkable. Among these may be mentioned as having beyond doubt existed, firstly, the coach invented by Monsieur Camus for the amusement of Louis the Fourteenth when a child, a table about four feet square was introduced into the room appropriated for the exhibition. Upon this table was placed a carriage, six inches in length, made of wood, and drawn by two horses of the same material. One window being down, a lady was seen on the back seat. A coachman held the reins on the box, and a footman and page were in their places behind. Monsieur Camus now touched a spring, whereupon the coachman smacked his whip, and the horses proceeded in a natural manner along the edge of the table, drawing after them the carriage. 
having gone as far as possible in this direction a sudden turn was made to the left and the vehicle was driven at right angles to its former course and still closely along the edge of the table in this way the coach proceeded until it arrived opposite the chair of the young prince it then stopped the page descended and opened the door the lady alighted and presented a petition to her sovereign she then re-entered the page put up the steps closed the door and resumed his station the coachman whipped his horses and the carriage was driven back to its original position the magician of monsieur maladette is also worthy of notice we copy the following account of it from the letters before mentioned of dr b who derived his information principally from the edinburgh encyclopedia one of the most popular pieces of mechanism which we have seen is the magician constructed by monsieur maladette for the purpose of answering certain questions a figure dressed like a magician appears seated at the bottom of a wall holding a wand in one hand and a book in the other a number of questions ready prepared are inscribed on oval medallions and the spectator takes any one of these he chooses and to which he wishes an answer and having placed it in a drawer ready to receive it the drawer shuts with a spring till the answer is returned the magician then arises from his seat bows his head describes circles with his wand and consulting the book as if in deep thought he lifts it towards his face having thus appeared to ponder over the proposed question he raises his wand and striking with it the wall above his head two folding doors fly open and display an appropriate answer to the question the doors again close the magician resumes his original position and the drawer opens to return the medallion there are twenty of these medallions all containing different questions to which the magician returns the most suitable and striking answers the medallions are thin plates of brass of an elliptical form exactly resembling each other some of the medallions have a question inscribed on each side both of which the magician answered in succession if the drawer is shut without a medallion being put into it the magician rises consults his book shakes his head and resumes his seat the folding doors remain shut and the drawer is returned empty if two medallions are put into the drawer together an answer is returned only to the lower one when the machinery is wound up the movements continue about an hour during which time about fifty questions may be answered the inventor stated that the means by which the different medallions acted upon the machinery so as to produce the proper answers to the questions which they contained were extremely simple 
the duck of vaucanson was still more remarkable it was of the size of life and so perfect an imitation of the living animal that all the spectators were deceived it executed says brewster all the natural movements and gestures it ate and drank with avidity performed all the quick motions of the head and throat which are peculiar to the duck and like it muddled the water which it drank with its bill it produced also the sound of quacking in the most natural manner in the anatomical structure the artist exhibited the highest skill every bone in the real duck had its representative in the automaton and its wings were anatomically exact every cavity apophysis and curvature was imitated and each bone executed its proper movements when corn was thrown down before it the duck stretched out its neck to pick it up swallowed and digested it but if these machines were ingenious what shall we think of the calculating machines of mr babbage what shall we think of an engine of wood and metal which can not only compute astronomical and navigational tables to any given extent but render the exactitude of its operations mathematically certain through its power of correcting its possible errors what shall we think of a machine which can not only accomplish all this but actually print off its elaborate results when obtained without the slightest intervention of the intellect of man it will perhaps be said in reply that such a machine as we have described is altogether above comparison with the chess player of mausel by no means it is altogether beneath it that is to say provided we assume what should never for a moment be assumed that the chess player is a pure machine and performs its operations without any immediate human agency arithmetical or algebraical calculations are from their very nature fixed and determinate certain data being given certain results necessarily and inevitably follow these results have dependence upon nothing and are influenced by nothing but the data originally given and the question to be solved proceeds or should proceed to its final determination by a succession of unerring steps liable to no change and subject to no modification this being the case we can without difficulty conceive the possibility of so arranging a piece of mechanism that upon a starting in accordance with the data of the question to be solved it should continue its movements regularly progressively and undeviatingly towards the required solution since these movements however complex are never imagined to be otherwise than finite and determinate but the case is widely different with the chess player. With him there is no determinate progression. No one move in chess necessarily follows upon any one other. From no particular disposition of the men at one period of a game can we predicate their disposition at a different period. Let us place the first move in a game of chess 
in juxtaposition with the data of an algebraical question and their great difference will be immediately perceived from the latter from the data the second step of the question dependent thereupon inevitably follows it is modeled by the data it must be thus and not otherwise but from the first move in the game of chess no especial second move follows of necessity in the algebraical question as it proceeds towards solution the certainty of its operations remains altogether unimpaired the second step having been a consequence of the data the third step is equally a consequence of the second the fourth of the third the fifth of the fourth and so on and not possibly otherwise to the end but in proportion to the progress made in a game of chess is the uncertainty of each ensuing move a few moves having been made no step is certain different spectators of the game would advise different moves all is then dependent upon the variable judgment of the players now even granting what should not be granted that the movements of the automaton chess player were in themselves determined they would be necessarily interrupted and disarranged by the indeterminate will of his antagonist there is then no analogy whatever between the operations of the chess player and those of the calculating machine of mr babbage and if we choose to call the former a pure machine we must be prepared to admit that it is beyond all comparison the most wonderful of the inventions of mankind its original projector however baron keplin had no scruple in declaring it to be a very ordinary piece of mechanism a bagatelle whose effects appeared so marvellous only from the boldness of the conception and the fortunate choice of the methods adopted for promoting the illusion but it is needless to dwell upon this point it is quite certain that the operations of the automaton are regulated by mind and by nothing else indeed this matter is susceptible of a mathematical demonstration a priori the only question then is of the manner in which human agency is brought to bear before entering upon this subject it would be as well to give a brief history and description of the chess player for the benefit of such of our readers as may never have had an opportunity of witnessing mr malzell's exhibition the automaton chess player was invented in seventeen sixty nine by baron keplin a nobleman of pressburg in hungary who afterwards disposed of it together with the secret of its operations to its present possessor soon after its completion it was exhibited in Pressburg, Paris, Vienna, and other continental cities. In 1783 and 1784, it was taken to London by Mr. Mausel. Of late years, it has visited the principal towns in the United States. Wherever seen, the most intense curiosity was excited by its appearance, and numerous have been the attempts by men of all classes to fathom the mystery of its evolutions. 
the cut on this page gives a tolerable representation of the figure as seen by the citizens of richmond a few weeks ago the right arm however should lie more at length upon the box a chessboard should appear upon it and the cushion should not be seen while the pipe is held some immaterial alterations have been made in the costume of the player since it came into the position of mousel the plume for example was not originally worn at the hour appointed for exhibition a curtain is withdrawn or folding doors are thrown open and the machine rolled to within about twelve feet of the nearest of the spectators between whom and it the machine a rope is stretched a figure is seen habited as a Turk, and seated with its legs crossed at a large box, apparently of maple wood, which serves it as a table. The exhibitor will, if requested, roll the machine to any portion of the room, suffer it to remain altogether on any designated spot, or even shift its location repeatedly during the progress of a game. The bottom of the box is elevated considerably above the floor by means of the casters or brazen rollers on which it moves, a clear view of the surface immediately beneath the automaton being thus afforded to the spectators. The chair on which the figure sits is affixed permanently to the box. On top of this latter is a chessboard also permanently affixed. The right arm of the chess player is extended at full length before him at right angles with his body and lying in an apparently careless position by the side of the board. The back of the hand is upwards. The board itself is 18 inches square. The left arm of the figure is bent at the elbow and in the left hand is a pipe. A green drapery conceals the back of the Turk and falls partially over the front of both shoulders. To judge from the external appearance of the box, it is divided into five compartments, three cupboards of equal dimensions, and two drawers occupying that portion of the chest lying beneath the cupboards. The foregoing observations apply to the appearance of the automaton upon its first introduction into the presence of the spectators. Mousel now informs the company that he will disclose to their view the mechanism of the machine. Taking from his pocket a bunch of keys, he unlocks with them door marked one in the cut above and throws the cupboard fully open to the inspection of all present. Its whole interior is apparently filled with wheels, pinions, levers, and other machinery crowded very closely together so that the eye can penetrate but a little distance into the mass. Leaving this door open to its full extent, he goes now round to the back of the box and raising the drapery of the figure opens another door situated precisely in the rear of the one first opened holding a lighted candle at this door and shifting the position of the whole machine repeatedly at the same time a bright light is thrown entirely through the cupboard 
which is now clearly seen to be fully, completely full of machinery. The spectators being satisfied of this fact, Mansell closes the back door, locks it, takes the key from the lock, lets fall the drapery of the figure, and comes round to the front. The door mark one, it will be remembered, is still open. The exhibitor now proceeds to open the drawer which lies beneath the cupboards at the bottom of the box. For although there are apparently two drawers, there is really only one, the two handles and two keyholes being intended merely for ornament. Having opened this drawer to its full extent, a small cushion and a set of chessmen fixed in a framework made to support them perpendicularly are discovered. Leaving this drawer, as well as cupboard number one open, Mazel now unlocks door number two and door number three, which are discovered to be folding doors, opening into one and the same compartment. To the right of this compartment, however, that is to say the spectator's right, a small division, six inches wide, and filled with machinery, is partitioned off. The main compartment itself, in speaking of that portion of the box visible upon opening doors two and three, we shall always call it the main compartment, is lined with dark cloth and contains no machinery whatever beyond two pieces of steel, quadrant-shaped and situated one in each of the rear top corners of the compartment. A small protuberance, about eight inches square, and also covered with dark cloth, lies on the floor of the compartment, near the rear corner on the spectator's left hand. Leaving doors number two and number three open, as well as the drawer and door number one, the exhibitor now goes round to the back of the main compartment, and unlocking another door there, displays clearly all the interior of the main compartment, by introducing a candle behind it and within it. The whole box being thus apparently disclosed to the scrutiny of the company, Mazel, still leaving the doors and drawers open, rolls the automaton entirely round and exposes the back of the Turk by lifting up the drapery. A door about ten inches square is thrown open in the loins of the figure and a smaller one also in the left thigh. The interior of the figure, as seen through these apertures, appears to be crowded with machinery. In general, every spectator is now thoroughly satisfied of having beheld and completely scrutinized, at one and the same time, every individual portion of the automaton, and the idea of any person being concealed in the interior during so complete an exhibition of that interior if ever entertained, is immediately dismissed as preposterous in the extreme. Monsieur Mazel, having rolled the machine back into its original position, now informs the company that the automaton will play a game of chess with anyone disposed to encounter him. This challenge being accepted, a small table is prepared for the antagonist and placed close by the rope but on the spectator's side of it and so situated as not to prevent the company from obtaining a full view of the automaton 
from a drawer in this table is taken a set of chessmen and mousel arranges them generally but not always with his own hands on the chessboard which consists merely of the usual number of squares painted upon the table the antagonist having taken his seat the exhibitor approaches the drawer of the box and takes therefrom the cushion which after removing the pipe from the hand of the automaton he places under its left arm as a support then taking also from the drawer the automaton set of chessmen he arranges them upon the chessboard before the figure he now proceeds to close the doors and to lock them leaving the bunch of keys in door number one he also closes the drawer and finally winds up the machine by applying a key to an aperture in the left end the spectator's left of the box the game now commences the automaton taking the first move the duration of the contest is usually limited to half an hour but if it be not finished at the expiration of this period and the antagonists still contend that he can beat the automaton monsieur malsell has seldom any objection to continue it not to weary the company is the ostensible and no doubt the real object of the limitation it wits of course be understood that when a move is made at his own table by the antagonist the corresponding move is made at the box of the automaton by mousel himself who then acts as the representative of the antagonist on the other hand when the turk moves the corresponding move is made at the table of the antagonist also by monsieur mousel who then acts as the representative of the automaton in this manner it is necessary that the exhibitor should often pass from one table to the other he also frequently goes in rear of the figure to remove the chessmen which it has taken and which it deposits when taken on the box to the left to its own left of the board when the automaton hesitates in relation to its move the exhibitor is occasionally seen to place himself very near its right side and to lay his hand now and then in a careless manner upon the box he has also a peculiar shuffle with his feet calculated to induce suspicion of collusion with the machine in minds which are more cunning than sagacious these peculiarities are no doubt mere mannerisms of monsieur mousel or if he is aware of them at all he puts them in practice with a view of exciting in the spectators a false idea of the pure mechanism in the automaton the turk plays with his left hand and all movements of the arm are at right angles in this manner the hand which is gloved and bent in a natural way being brought directly above the piece to be moved descends finally upon it the fingers receiving it in most cases without difficulty occasionally however when the piece is not precisely in its proper situation the ottoman fails in his attempt at seizing it when this occurs no second effort is made but the arm continues its movement in the direction originally intended precisely as if the piece were in the fingers 
having thus designated the spot whither the move should have been made the arm returns to its cushion and mazel performs the evolution which the automaton pointed out at every movement of the figure machinery is heard in motion during the progress of the game the figure now and then rolls its eyes as if surveying the board moves its head and pronounces the word check when necessary if a false move be made by his antagonist he raps briskly on the box with the fingers of his right hand shakes his head roughly and replacing the piece falsely moved in his former situation assumes the next move himself upon beating the game he waves his head with an air of triumph looks round complacently upon the spectators and drawing his left arm farther back than usual suffers his fingers alone to rest upon the cushion in general the turk is victorious once or twice he has been beaten the game being ended mauser will again if desired exhibit the mechanism of the box in the same manner as before the machine is then rolled back and a curtain hides it from the view of the company there have been many attempts at solving the mystery of the automaton the most general opinion in relation to it an opinion too not unfrequently adopted by men who should have known better was as we have before said that no immediate human agency was employed in other words that the machine was purely a machine and nothing else many however have maintained that the exhibitor himself regulated the movements of the figure by mechanical means operating through the feet of the box others again spoke confidently of a magnet of the first of these opinions we shall say nothing at present more than we have already said in relation to the second it is only necessary to repeat what we have before stated that the machine is rolled about on casters and will at the request of a spectator be moved to and fro to any portion of the room even during the progress of a game the supposition of the magnet is also untenable for if a magnet were the agent any other magnet in the pocket of a spectator would disarrange the entire mechanism the exhibitor however will suffer the most powerful lodestone to remain even upon the box during the whole of the exhibition the first attempt at a written explanation of the secret at least the first attempt of which we ourselves have any knowledge was made in a large pamphlet printed at paris in seventeen eighty five the author's hypothesis amounted to this that a dwarf actuated the machine this dwarf he supposed to conceal himself during the opening of the box by thrusting his legs into two hollow cylinders which were represented to be but which are not among the machinery in the cupboard number one while his body was out of the box entirely and covered by the drapery of the turk when the doors were shut the dwarf was enabled to bring his body within the box the noise produced by some portion of the machinery allowing him to do so unheard and also to close the door by which he entered 
The interior of the automaton being then exhibited and no person discovered, the spectators, says the author of this pamphlet, are satisfied that no one is within any portion of the machine. This whole hypothesis was too obviously absurd to require comment or refutation, and accordingly we find that it attracted very little attention. In 1789, a book was published at Dresden by M. I. F. Freyhier, in which another endeavor was made to unravel the mystery. Mr. Freyhier's book was a pretty large one, and copiously illustrated by colored engravings. His supposition was that a well-taught boy, very thin and tall of his age, sufficiently so that he could be concealed in a drawer almost immediately under the chessboard, played the game of chess and effected all the evolutions of the automaton. This idea, although even more silly than that of the Parisian author, met with a better reception, and was in some measure believed to be the true solution of the wonder until the inventor put an end to the discussion by suffering a close examination of the top of the box. These bizarre attempts at explanation were followed by others equally bizarre. Of late years, however, an anonymous writer by a course of reasoning exceedingly unphilosophical has contrived to blunder upon a plausible solution although we cannot consider it altogether the true one his essay was first published in a baltimore weekly paper was illustrated by cuts and was entitled an attempt to analyze the automaton chess player of monsieur Mazel. this essay we suppose to have been the original of the pamphlet to which sir david brewster alludes in his letters on natural magic and which he has no hesitation in declaring a thorough and satisfactory explanation the result of the analysis are undoubtedly in the main just but we can only account for brewster's pronouncing the essay a thorough and satisfactory explanation by supposing him to have bestowed upon it a very cursory and inattentive perusal in the compendium of the essay made use of in the letters on natural magic it is quite impossible to arrive at any distinct conclusion in regard to the adequacy or inadequacy of the analysis on account of the gross misarrangement and deficiency of the letters of reference employed the same fault is to be found in the attempt etc as we originally saw it the solution consists in a series of minute explanations accompanied by woodcuts the whole occupying many pages in which the object is to show the possibility of so shifting the partitions of the box as to allow a human being concealed in the interior to move portions of his body from one part of the box to another during the exhibition of the mechanism thus eluding the scrutiny of the spectators there can be no doubt as we have before observed and as we will presently endeavor to show that the principle or rather the result of the solution is the true one 
some person is concealed in the box during the whole time of exhibiting the interior we object however to the whole verbose description of the manner in which the partitions are shifted to accommodate the movements of the person concealed we object to it as a mere theory assumed in the first place and to which circumstances are afterwards made to adapt themselves it was not and could not have been arrived at by any inductive reasoning in whatever way the shifting is managed it is of course concealed at every step from observation to show that certain movements might possibly be affected in a certain way is very far from showing that they are actually so effected. There may be an infinity of other methods by which the same results may be obtained. The probability of the one assumed proving the correct one is then as unity to infinity. But in reality, this particular point, the shifting of the partitions, is of no consequence whatever it was altogether unnecessary to devote seven or eight pages for the purpose of proving what no one in his senses would deny viz that the wonderful mechanical genius of baron keplin could invent the necessary means for shutting a door or slipping aside a panel with a human agent too at his service in actual contact with the panel or the door with the whole operations carried on as the author of the essay himself shows and as we shall attempt to show more fully hereafter entirely out of reach of the observation of the spectators in attempting ourselves an explanation of the automaton we will in the first place endeavor to show how its operations are effected and afterwards describe as briefly as possible the nature of the observations from which we have deduced our results End of section 18. Recording by Susan Morin, Portland, Maine. Malzell's Chess Player, Part 2, by Edgar Allan Poe. It will be necessary for a proper understanding of the subject that we repeat here in a few words the routine adopted by the exhibitor in disclosing the interior of the box a routine from which he never deviates in any material particular in the first place he opens the door number one leaving this open he goes round to the rear of the box and opens a door precisely at the back of door number one to this back door he holds a lighted candle. He then closes the back door, locks it, and coming round to the front, opens the drawer to its full extent. This done, he opens the doors number two and number three, the folding doors, and displays the interior of the main compartment. Leaving open the main compartment, the drawer, and the front door of cupboard number one, he now goes to the rear again and throws open the back door of the main compartment. In shutting up the box, no particular order is observed, except the folding doors are always closed before the drawer. 
Now, let us suppose that when the machine is first rolled in the presence of the spectators, a man is already within it. His body is situated behind the dense machinery in cupboard number one. The rear portion of the machinery is so contrived as to slip en masse from the main compartment to cupboard number one as occasion may require, and his legs lie at full length in the main compartment. When Malzal opens the door number one, the man within is not in any danger of discovery, for the keenest eyes cannot penetrate more than about two inches into the darkness within. But the case is otherwise when the back door of the cupboard number one is opened. A bright light then pervades the cupboard, and the body of the man would be discovered if it were there. But it is not. The putting the key in the lock of the back door was a signal on hearing which the person concealed wrought his body forward to an angle as acute as possible, throwing it altogether, or nearly so, into the main compartment. This, however, is a painful position, and cannot be long maintained. Accordingly, we find that Malzil closes the back door. This being done, there is no reason why the body of the man may not resume its former situation, for the cupboard is again so dark as to defy scrutiny. The drawer is now open, and the legs of the person within drop down behind it in the space it formerly occupied. There is consequently now no longer any part of the man in the main compartment, his body being behind the machinery in cupboard number one, and his legs in the space occupied by the drawer. The exhibitor, therefore, finds himself at liberty to display the main compartment. This he does, opening both its back and front doors, and no person is discovered. The spectators are now satisfied that the whole of the box is exposed to view, and exposed to all portions of it at one and the same time. But, of course, this is not the case. They neither see the space behind the drawer, nor the interior of cupboard number one, the front door of which latter the exhibitor virtually shuts in shutting its back door. Malzil, having now rolled the machine around, lifted up the drapery of the Turk, opened the doors in his back and thigh, and shown his trunk to be full of machinery, brings the whole back into its original position and closes the door. The man within is now at liberty to move about. He gets up into the body of the Turk, just so high as to bring his eyes above the level of the chessboard. It is very probable that he sits himself upon the little square block or protuberance which is seen in a corner of the main compartment when the doors are open. In this position he sees the chessboard through the bosom of the Turk 
which is of gauze. Bringing his right arm across his breast, he actuates the little machinery necessary to guide the left arm and the fingers of the figure. This machinery is situated just beneath the left shoulder of the Turk and is consequently easily reached by the right hand of the man concealed if we suppose his right arm brought across the breast. The motions of the head and eyes and of the right arm of the figure as well as the sound check are produced by other mechanism in the interior and actuated at will by the man within. The whole of this mechanism, that is to say all the mechanism essential to the machine, is most probably contained within the little cupboard of about six inches in breadth, partitioned off at the right, the spectator's right, of the main compartment. In this analysis of the operations of the automaton, we have purposely avoided any allusion to the manner in which the partitions are shifted, and it will now be readily comprehended that this point is a matter of no importance, since by mechanisms within the ability of any common carpenter, it might be effected in an infinity of different ways, and since we have shown that however performed, it is performed out of the view of the spectators. Our result is founded upon the following observations taken during frequent visits to the exhibition of Malzel. 1. The moves of the Turk are not made at regular intervals of time, but accommodate themselves to the moves of the antagonist. Although this point of regularity, so important to all kinds of mechanical contrivance, might have been readily brought about by limiting the time allowed for the moves of the antagonist. For example, if this limit were three minutes, the moves of the automaton might be made at any given intervals longer than three minutes. The fact, then, of irregularity, when regularity might have been so easily attained, goes to prove that regularity is unimportant to the action of the automaton. In other words, that the automaton is not a pure machine. 2. When the automaton is about to move a piece, a distinct motion is observable just beneath the left shoulder and which motion agitates in a slight degree the drapery covering the front of the left shoulder. This motion invariably precedes by about two seconds the movement of the arm itself, and the arm never in any instance moves without this preparatory motion in the shoulder. Now let the antagonist move a piece, and let the corresponding move be made by Mausel as usual upon the board of the automaton. Then let the antagonist narrowly watch the automaton until he detect the preparatory motion in the shoulder. Immediately upon detecting this motion, and before the arm itself begins to move, let him withdraw his piece, as if perceiving an error in his maneuver, it will then be seen that the movement of the arm, which in all other cases immediately succeeds the motion in the shoulder, is withheld, is not made. 
although Maelzel has not yet performed on the board of the automaton any move corresponding to the withdrawal of the antagonist. In this case, that the automaton was about to move is evident, and that he did not move was an effect plainly produced by the withdrawal of the antagonist and without any intervention of Maelzel. This fact fully proves, one, that the intervention of Maelzel in performing the moves of the antagonist on the board of the automaton is not essential to the movements of the automaton, two, that its movements are regulated by mind, by some person who sees the board of the antagonist, three, that its movements are not regulated by the mind of Maelzel, whose back was turned towards the antagonist at the withdrawal of his move. 3. The automaton does not invariably win the game. Were the machine a pure machine, this would not be the case. It would always win. The principle being discovered by which a machine can be made to play a game of chess, an extension of the same principle would enable it to win a game. A farther extension would enable it to win all games, that is, to beat any possible game of an antagonist. A little consideration will convince anyone that the difficulty of making a machine beat all games is not in the least degree greater as regards the principle of the operations necessary than of making it beat a single game. If then we regard the chess player as a machine, we must suppose, what is highly improbable, that its inventor preferred leaving it incomplete to perfecting it. A supposition rendered still more absurd when we reflect that the leaving it incomplete would afford an argument against the possibility of its being a pure machine the very argument we now adduce for when the situation of the game is difficult or complex we never perceive the turk either shake his head or roll his eyes it is only when his next move is obvious or when the game is so circumstanced that to a man in the automaton's place there would be no necessity for reflection now these peculiar movements of the head and eyes are movements customary with persons engaged in meditation and the ingenious baron keplin would have adapted these movements with a machine a pure machine to occasions proper for their display that is to occasions of complexity but the reverse is seen to be the case and this reverse applies precisely to our supposition of a man in the interior when engaged in meditation about the game he has no time to think of setting in motion the mechanism of the automaton by which are moved the head and the eyes when the game however is obvious he has time to look about him and accordingly we see the head shake and the eyes roll five when the machine is rolled round to allow the spectators an examination of the back of the turk and when his drapery is lifted up and the doors in the trunk and thigh thrown open the interior of the trunk is seen to be crowded with machinery in scrutinizing this machinery while the automaton was in motion that is to say while the whole machine was moving on the casters 
It appeared to us that certain portions of the mechanism changed their shape and position in a degree too great to be accounted for by the simple laws of perspective, and subsequent examinations convinced us that these undue alterations were attributable to mirrors in the interior of the trunk. The introduction of mirrors among the machinery could not have been intended to influence in any degree the machinery itself. Their operation, whatever the operation should prove to be, must necessarily have reference to the eye of the spectator. We at once conclude that these mirrors were so placed to multiply to the vision some few pieces of machinery within the trunk so as to give it the appearance of being crowded with mechanism. Now the direct inference from this is that the machine is not a pure machine. For if it were, the inventor, so far from wishing its mechanism to appear complex and using deception for the purpose of giving it this appearance, would have been especially desirous of convincing those who witnessed his exhibition of the simplicity of the means by which results so wonderful were brought about. 6. The external appearance, especially the deportment of the Turk, are, when we consider them as imitations of life, but very indifferent imitations. The continence evinces no ingenuity and is surpassed in its resemblance to the human face by the very commonest of waxworks. The eyes roll unnaturally in the head, without any corresponding motions of the lids or brows. The arm, particularly, performs its operations in an exceedingly stiff, awkward, jerking, and rectangular manner. Now all this is the result either of inability in Mazel to do better, or of intentional neglect, accidental neglect being out of the question when we consider that the whole time of the ingenious proprietor is occupied in the improvement of his machines. Most assuredly, we must not refer the unlife-like appearance to inability, for all the rest of Mazel's automata are evidence of his full ability to copy the motions and peculiarities of life with the most wonderful exactitude. The rope dancers, for example, are inimitable. When the clown laughs, his lips, his eyes, his eyebrows and eyelids, indeed all the features of his countenance are imbued with their appropriate expressions. In both him and his companion, every gesture is so entirely easy and free from the semblance of artificiality that were it not for the diminutiveness of their size and the fact of their being passed from one spectator to another previous to their exhibition on the rope, it would be difficult to convince any assemblage of persons that these wooden automata were not living creatures. We cannot therefore doubt Mr. Mauser's ability, and we must necessarily suppose that he intentionally suffered his chess player to remain the same artificial and unnatural figure which Baron Kaplan, no doubt also through design, originally made it. What this design was, it is not difficult to conceive. Were the automaton lifelike in its motions, the spectator would be more apt to attribute its operations to their true cause, that is, to human agency within, 
than he is now when the awkward and rectangular maneuvers convey the idea of pure and unaided mechanism. 7. When a short time previous to the commencement of the game, the automaton is wound up by the exhibitor as usual, an ear in any degree accustomed to the sounds produced in winding up a system of machinery will not fail to discover instantaneously that the axis turned by the key in the box of the chess player cannot possibly be connected with either a weight a spring or any system of machinery whatever the inference here is the same as in our last observation the winding up is inessential to the operations of the automaton and is performed with the design of exciting in the spectators the false idea of mechanism eight when the question is demanded explicitly of Mazel, is the automaton a pure machine or not his reply is invariably the same i will say nothing about it now the notoriety of the automaton and the great curiosity it has everywhere excited are owing more especially to the prevalent opinion that it is a pure machine than to any other circumstance of course then it is the interest of the proprietor to represent it as a pure machine and what more obvious and more effectual method could there be of impressing the spectators with this desired idea than a positive and explicit declaration to that effect on the other hand what more obvious and effectual method could there be of exciting a disbelief in the automaton's being a pure machine than by withholding such explicit declaration for people will naturally reason thus it is mausel's interest to represent this thing a pure machine he refuses to do so directly in words although he does not scruple and is evidently anxious to do so indirectly by actions were it actually what he wishes to represent it by actions he would gladly avail himself of the more direct testimony of words the inference is that a consciousness of its not being a pure machine is the reason of his silence his actions cannot implicate him in a falsehood his words may nine when in exhibiting the interior of the box mazel has thrown open the door number one and also the door immediately behind it he holds a lighted candle at the back door as mentioned above and moves the entire machine to and fro with a view of convincing the company that cupboard number one is entirely filled with machinery when the machine is thus moved about it will be apparent to any careful observer that whereas that portion of the machinery near the front door number one is perfectly steady and unwavering the portion farther within fluctuates in a very slight degree with the movements of the machine this circumstance first aroused in us the suspicion that the more remote portion of the machinery was so arranged as to be easily slipped en masse from its position when occasion should require it this occasion we have already stated to occur when the man concealed within brings his body into an erect position upon the closing of the back door Ten 
Sir David Brewster states the figure of the Turk to be the size of life, but in fact it is far above the ordinary size. Nothing is more easy than to err in our notions of magnitude. The body of the automaton is generally insulated, and, having no means of immediately comparing it with any human form, we suffer ourselves to consider it as of ordinary dimensions. This mistake may, however, be corrected by observing the chess player when, as is sometimes the case, the exhibitor approaches it. Mr. Malzil, to be sure, is not very tall, but upon drawing near the machine, his head will be found at least 18 inches below the head of the Turk, although the latter, it will be remembered, is in a sitting position. 11. The box behind which the automaton is placed is precisely 3 feet 6 inches long, 2 feet 4 inches deep, and 2 feet 6 inches high. These dimensions are sufficient for the accommodation of a man very much above the common size, and the main compartment alone is capable of holding any ordinary man in the position we have mentioned and assumed by the person concealed. As these are facts, which any one who doubts them may prove by actual calculation, we deem it unnecessary to dwell upon them. We will only suggest that, although the top of the box is apparently a board of about three inches in thickness, the spectator may satisfy himself by stooping and looking up at it when the main compartment is open, that it is in reality very thin. The height of the drawer also will be misconceived by those who examine it in a cursory manner. There is a space of about three inches between the top of the drawer as seen from the exterior and the bottom of the cupboard, a space which must be included in the height of the drawer. These contrivances to make the room within the box appear less than it actually is are referable to a design on the part of the inventor to impress the company again with a false idea viz that no human being can be accommodated within the box twelve the interior of the main compartment is lined throughout with cloth this cloth we suppose to have a twofold object a portion of it may form when tightly stretched the only partitions which there is any necessity for removing during the changes of the man's position, viz. the partition between the rear of the main compartment and the rear of the cupboard number one, and the partition between the main compartment and the space behind the drawer when open. If we imagine this to be the case, the difficulty of shifting the partitions vanishes at once, if indeed any such difficulty could be supposed under any circumstances to exist. The second object of the cloth is to deaden and render indistinct all sounds occasioned by the movements of the person within. 13. The antagonist, as we have observed, is not suffered to play at the board of the automaton, but is seated at some distance from the machine. 
the reasons which most probably would be assigned for this circumstance if the question were demanded is that were the antagonist otherwise situated his person would intervene between the machine and the spectators and preclude the latter from a distinct view but this difficulty might be easily obviated either by elevating the seats of the company or by turning the end of the box towards them during the game the true cause of the restriction is perhaps very different were the antagonist seated in contact with the box the secret would be liable to discovery by his detecting with the aid of a quick ear the breathing of the man concealed fourteen although m mausel in disclosing the interior of the machine sometimes slightly deviates from the routine which we have pointed out yet really in any instance does he so deviate from it as to interfere with our solution for example he has been known to open first of all the drawer but he never opens the main compartment without first closing the back door of cupboard number one he never opens the main compartment without first pulling out the drawer he never shuts the drawer without first shutting the main compartment he never opens the back door of cupboard number one while the main compartment is open and the game of chess is never commenced until the whole machine is closed and if it were observed that never in any single instance did monsieur malzel differ from the routine we have pointed out as necessary to our solution it would be one of the strongest possible arguments in corroboration of it but the argument becomes infinitely strengthened if we duly consider the circumstance that he does occasionally deviate from the routine but never does so deviate as to falsify the solution fifteen there are six candles on the board of the automaton during exhibition the question naturally arises why are so many employed when a single candle or at farthest two would have been amply sufficient to afford the spectators a clear view of the board in a room otherwise so well lit up as the exhibition room always is when moreover if we suppose the machine a pure machine there can be no necessity for so much light or indeed any light at all to enable it to perform its operations and when especially only a single candle is placed upon the table of the antagonist the first and most obvious inference is that so strong a light is requisite to enable the man within to see through the transparent material probably fine gauze of which the breast of the turk is composed but when we consider the arrangement of the candles another reason immediately presents itself there are six lights as we have said before in all three of these are on each side of the figure those most remote from the spectators are the longest those in the middle are about two inches shorter and those nearest the company about two inches shorter still and the candles on one side differ in height from the candles respectively opposite on the other by a ratio different from two inches that is to say the longest candle on one side is about three inches shorter than the longest candle on the other and so on 
Thus it will be seen that no two of the candles are of the same height, and thus also the difficulty of ascertaining the material of the breast of the figure against which the light is especially directed is greatly augmented by the dazzling effect of the complicated crossing of the rays, crossings which are brought about by placing the centers of radiation all upon different levels. 16. While the chess player was in possession of Baron Keplin, it was more than once observed, first, that an Italian in the suite of the Baron was never visible during the playing of a game at chess by the Turk, and secondly, that the Italian being taken seriously ill, the exhibition was suspended until his recovery. The Italian professed a total ignorance of the game of chess, although all others of the suite played well. Similar observations have been made since the automaton has been purchased by Mazel. There is a man Schlumberger who attends him wherever he goes, but who has no ostensible occupation other than that of assisting in the packing and unpacking of the automata. This man is about the medium size and has a remarkable stoop in the shoulders. Whether he professes to play chess or not, we are not informed. It is quite certain, however, that he is never to be seen during the exhibition of the chess player, although frequently visible just before and just after the exhibition. Moreover, some years ago, Mausel visited Richmond with his automata and exhibited them, we believe, in the house now occupied by Monsieur Beauzieux as a dancing academy. Schlumberger was suddenly taken ill, and during his illness there was no exhibition of the chess player. These facts are well known to many of our citizens. The reason assigned for the suspicion of the chess player's performance was not the illness of Schlumberger. The inferences from all this we leave without farther comment to the reader. 17. The Turk plays with his left arm. A circumstance so remarkable cannot be accidental. Brewster takes no notice of it whatever beyond a mere statement. We believe that such is the fact. The early writers of trustees on the automaton seem not to have observed the matter at all and have no reference to it. The author of the pamphlet alluded to by Brewster mentions it, but acknowledges his inability to account for it. Yet it is obviously from such prominent discrepancies or incongruities as this that deductions are to be made, if made at all, which shall lead us to the truth. The circumstance of the automatons playing with his left hand cannot have connection with the operations of the machine considered merely as such. Any mechanical arrangement would cause the figure to move in any given manner. The left arm could, if reversed, cause it to move in the same manner the right. But these principles cannot be extended to the human organization, wherein there is a marked and radical difference in the construction and, at all events, in the powers of the right and left arms. 
Reflecting upon this latter fact, we naturally refer to the incongruity noticeable in the chess player to this peculiarity in the human organization. If so, we must imagine some reversion, for the chess player plays precisely as a man would not. These ideas, once entertained, are sufficient of themselves to suggest the notion of a man in the interior. A few more perceptible steps lead us finally to the result. The automaton plays with his left arm because under no other circumstances could the man within play with his right. A desideratum, of course. Let us, for example, imagine the automaton to play with his right arm. To reach the machinery which moves the arm, which we have before explained to lie just beneath the shoulder, it would be necessary for the man within either to use his right arm in an exceedingly painful and awkward position, viz. brought up close to his body and tightly compressed between his body and the side of the automaton, or else to use his left arm brought across his breast. In neither case could he act with the requisite ease or precision. On the contrary, the automaton, playing as it actually does with the left arm, all difficulties vanish. The right arm of the man within is brought across his breast, and his right fingers act, without any constraint upon the machinery in the shoulder of the figure. We do not believe that any reasonable objection can be urged against this solution of the automaton chess player. End of section 19 Recording by Susan Moran, Portland, Maine